11. Jesus said in Luke chapter 7, verse 35, but wisdom is justified by all her children. Justified, as in approved, validated, maybe sustained, or even identified. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10, and also Proverbs chapter 1, verse 10, says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Proverbs 8, 13 says, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance, and the evil way, and the perverse mouth I hate. Do you hate evil? Romans chapter 12, verse 9 says, Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Do you abhor what is evil? And if so, how does that quality of abhorring evil and hating evil, how does that show up in your life? What is it that you do or say or how is it that you live that reveals this, this hatred of evil in your life? I'm curious. My perspective is, is that a, a person... Wisdom is a discipline of life. The practice of well-balanced priorities and understanding... And how to apply those things. In the Old Testament, the word for wisdom is the Hebrew word chokmah, which is translated wisdom, wisely, skillfully. And it has to do with skill, the skill that a person exercises in their life. Um, can be skill in war, wisdom in administration, shrewdness, prudence having to do with a relationship with the Lord, ethical wisdom. Whatever we might think about wisdom or how we might characterize it, one thing is for certain, and that is that wisdom shows up. Wisdom is revealed in the lives of men and women that possess it, or even by its absence, it is conspicuous. How many times in your short life have you wished to have made a different decision or understood a situation better or been better prepared to address some situation or another? And I think if we're honest, it happens every day, every single day. We look 15 minutes back, an hour back, yesterday, if only I had known X, Y, and Z. One of my very favorite things about being a believer in Christ, having a relationship with the Lord Jesus, is that he is the one that protects my interests even when I make unwise decisions or speak or act from the absence of wisdom. You see, he is so powerful as to work all things together for the good, for those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. It tells us in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. He is the cure for all of our foolishness. Still, how much better 
And I think this is a good question. How much better to have leaned upon the wisdom that he provides rather than to engage his ability to dig us out of our own, the mess of our own creation, you know? Again, how much better to have leaned upon the wisdom that God provides rather than to rely upon his ability to dig us out of a mess, a mess of our own, our own doing, don't you think? Maybe you should ask Adam about that the next time that you see him. Not, not, not Adam Roberts, although he might have some insight. I don't know. I was thinking about our, our father, Adam. The general epistle of James is called a general epistle because it is not, there's no specific church or personal address. It is addressed in chapter one, verse one, the second part of verse one, to the 12 tribes that are scattered abroad. And this actually, the statement gives some weight to the idea that it is the earliest or of the earliest books of the New Testament uh, being addressed to Jews and not Gentiles, to the 12 tribes. It's not addressed to non-Jewish Christians. And that, accordingly, is going to suggest that it was written prior to Acts chapter 10, where Peter preaches to the Roman centurion Cornelius, or sometime around that that period. And as indicated by the phrase, scattered abroad, it would be sometime after the great persecution recorded at the death of Stephen in Acts chapter 8. So you've got the writing of this book, possibly, we don't know for certain, between Acts chapter 8 and 10. Like other books of the Bible devoted to wisdom, Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, James is somewhat cyclical in its nature. It it kind of works its way through a variety of topics that come up over and over again and cycle through the chapters, the five chapters of the book. The text that we're going to be looking at this evening is kind of divided up into two sections. Section one, the seeking of wisdom, verses five, six, seven, and eight. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And then the second section, the significance and limitations of material belongings, material wealth, in verses 9, 10, and 11. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field, he will pass away. For no sooner is the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty, beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man will also fade away in his pursuits. Proverbs chapter 4 verse 20 says, My son, give attention to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. 
Do not let them depart from your eyes. Keep them in the midst of your heart. He's not talking about the pump in your chest. You know, you ever been in a situation where all of a sudden you thought, oh my gosh, what am I doing? What am I doing? What am I doing? Why am I doing this? Your heart is why. Because something has taken a hold of your heart and moved you in a direction that your mind and the rest of your person knows is a terrible mistake. This is why the Lord instructs us to guard our hearts. Verse 22, Proverbs 4.22 says, For they are life to those that find them and health to all their flesh. Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. It's like these ideas are important or something. I think we all agree that these things are important. The question is, how important and important compared to what? See, that's the issue. We can stand up with the Christian cheering section and say, yay, the word of God, rah. How important and important compared to what? People have an amazing and sometimes terrifying capacity to be separated from reality. They really do. In in the book of 1 John, the epistle of 1 John, where, where John writes by the Holy Spirit, that um, those who love the Lord's appearing purify themselves even as he is pure. There's an awful lot to that. It's not a casual kind of thing. It's like, yeah, I really, I'm hoping the Lord comes back. Yeah. See, because I did a counseling appointment one time with a couple. You learn a lot of things when you do counseling. It's very interesting. Um, You learn things you don't know, which is always great. I sat down with a couple, and a really interesting couple. And uh, they used to go here some years ago. They were very sweet. Like a lot of people, you know, they're Christians. They're nice people. They're having some issues in their life. And uh, we talked about them and um, kind of attributed them to spiritual attack. They were under some spiritual attack. And they were somewhat new believers, a couple of years old in the Lord. And when you see spiritual attack in people, you wonder, well, what's the back story here? Why is there such a pronounced spiritual attack in the lives of these people? Somebody playing with Ouija boards, somebody doing seances in the back room, what's going on? I mean, you wonder. I mean, this is the kind of thing, questions you have to ask to find out. Is there, is there some kind of issue afoot? And so I'm talking to these people, I'm talking to this guy, and I met with him several times, and uh, really fascinating. I, and I talked, his wife came in, I talked to his wife, I said, so, you know, how's your, how would you characterize your relationship with the Lord? And she said, she said to me, she said, that her relationship with the Lord was really wonderful, but kind of terrifying to her, 
why? And she said, you know, because I'm constantly in a situation where I expect to actually see the Lord appear and be there. And she was like at the point of tears. And I thought, where did you get that? And how can I get some? (laughs) Because you see, that is the idea. Those that love the appearing of the Lord purify themselves, even as he is pure. Because you are not detached from reality at that point. You are utterly plugged in to what's going on. And you recognize that you are, everything about your life is open and naked before him with whom we have to do. He is watching. He is here. He's examining my thoughts and my actions and my deeds. And so we are moved to purify ourselves in his sight. So the question really, important compared to what and how important? The effective work of the word of God in our lives is not without conditions. We're all exposed to the word of God. But I mean, even Isaiah chapter 55, verse 11, the Lord says, So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth shall not return to me void. It will accomplish what I please and it will, it will prosper in the thing for which I sent it. Notice, he has to send it. It goes forth from his mouth. It's just not something that you can toss about at random and expect to accomplish. It's the Lord's thing. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, the Apostle Paul says, For this reason we thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it, Not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. When you deal with people in our current culture, in the Christian culture, in the world that we live in today, folks, and you share the word of God with them and they respond like it's the word of God, it's kind of startling. It's not what you expect. You kind of expect people just to kind of take it on a surface value. Well, yeah, I know that scripture. Thanks. Thanks, brother. But when people are moved because of God's presence in the word, it's, it's impressive. You know, I can't tell you how often you go, have an opportunity to go minister to somebody or share with somebody and wind up being the one who gets instructed. It happens all the time, all the time. You know, when you go to share the word of God with somebody and God touches them and moves and affects them, it humbles you dramatically. It's a powerful thing. Notice he says it affects, works effectively. The, the scripture works effectively in who? In those that believe. They believe what? They believe that it is the very word of God. Very important. Know the word of God and give it the consideration and respect that it deserves. Do everything that you can to give God's word the consideration and respect that it deserves. In the first section here, section one, seeking wisdom. Verses 5, 6, 7, and 8. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach and it will be given to him. Do men lack wisdom? Is the Pope Catholic? 
You could almost read this as a rhetorical question. It's not. That's not. That's not the intention. It's not sarcastic in nature. It's a sincere overture. If you, you need wisdom, and that's the idea. Look at the world that you live in. Look at the world that you live in and ask the question, do men lack wisdom? What do you think? God's commentary on the wisdom of men is, I think, really fascinating. The wisest man that ever lived had a thousand wives. That's God's commentary on wisdom. Yeah. Genius. Wisdom is not our forte. It's not what we do well. I would go so far as to say that the only way men can achieve and operate in wisdom on their own would be by accident. But fortunately, we don't have to rely on our own abilities. We can ask God. But still, in order to ask God, you do have to recognize a couple of things. First of all, that you need wisdom that you don't have. That's a prerequisite. You have to recognize that you need wisdom and that God has and can deliver the wisdom that you need. Recognizing that you need wisdom is a kind of wisdom in itself. It really is. Combined with the necessary component of humility, that is the understanding that what I need, I don't have. And I think there are some ways in which the Lord finds that irresistible. God is moved by humility in his creatures. Not only does he not upbraid them or chastise them or those who ask, he gives grace to the humble, Proverbs 3, 4, 3, 34, and also quoted here in, in James chapter 4, verse 6. He gives gr- more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And added to that, the understanding of who to ask. Where do you go seeking wisdom? You see, folks, the world is full to overflowing of people that know that they don't know. There's a lot of people who know that they don't know. They're not afraid to tell you. They're not equivocal about it. They know that they don't know. But they keep asking other people who don't know also. And listening to the foolishness, unfortunately. When we can so easily go to the Lord. And notice in the second part of verse 5 there. For those who ask. He says, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach. Notice how much God is not like people. I mean, there are people that you can go to for help. Like when you really need help. There are people that you can go to for help. But you know, you know that it will cost you. You know what's coming when you go to those people for help. You have to, oh, oh, you need my help? You need my, oh my, imagine that. You need my help. Who would have thought? Margaret, come here. Look who needs my help. I was wondering when you were going to call. You know I'm always at your disposal. Nothing more that I want to do than help you. 
or any other number of snappy responses, you know. Isn't it so nice that God has no need to grind us? He doesn't gloat at our failure. He takes no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. He already knows how inept we are. He sees the holes that we dig for ourselves. He genuinely wants to help us. He really does. You know, it's interesting when you, when you consider that and how many people there are who need help that are not receiving the help they need. You know, there's so much more going on. So often God is working in a difficult situation to use it to instruct, to encourage, to strengthen, to give perspective and, and to teach in so many different ways. And sometimes, sometimes there are problems with us when we're asking for help, that there's some other issue in us that's not. But that's not always the case. You know, sometimes God is using the difficulty of a situation to weigh upon us, to help us, to get us beyond, get us over the, the issue that's, that's been holding us back. The idea here is if you need wisdom, and you do need wisdom, but if you know that you need wisdom, God will provide it and he is pleased to do so without reproach. One thing we should learn from this, God wants us to be gracious with other people that need our help, doesn't he? Even people that don't deserve our help, God wants us to be gracious. Oh, you know, I, I couldn't resist just to rub their nose in it just a little bit. Why? To what end? Does it make you feel important? If you need to give people a hard time to feel significant, you have larger problems. And you know, God is the guy who likes to put his finger on those larger problems. He will find them. Give people an out. Be gracious to people. When somebody sins against you, when somebody treats you badly, look for an opportunity to be forgiving and gracious towards them. In John, you know, chapter 21, Jesus at the Sea of Galilee talking to Simon Peter. And Simon Peter's all caught up with what Jesus is going to do in the life of John. You know, what about John? You know, it's John. And, and Jesus says to him, hey, you follow me. You know, that you follow me. Worry about him. Like in so many things, the Lord uses to exhort us in our walk with him. He wants us to take the example to our hearts and to put it into practice. A moment ago, I said we can easily go to the Lord, and that's really true. But to do that effectively, we must believe. Hebrews eleven six says, Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is the rewarder of those who seek him diligently here in James 1, 6, he says, let him ask in faith with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. Let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So 
in verses 6, 7, and 8, the scripture really addresses the necessity, our necessity, our need for stability in our, in our confidence, our faith towards the Lord, our relationship with the Lord to be stable. In, in the first part of verse 6, the prescription for request, requesting wisdom, let him ask in faith with no doubting. That is to be confident in the Lord's ability to respond to the request. Now, some people might say, well, you, you know, you can't make yourself believe things. And that, that may be true. But let me suggest that you can certainly do a good many things that will directly impact your confidence and understanding of God's ability and his desire to answer your request. For instance, spending time in the word of God to better and more completely understand God's working regarding his people. Why would God give me wisdom? What is the really good reason that God should give you? I know it says in James chapter 1, God will. But why should he give you wisdom? Well, God gave wisdom to Balaam, to Jonah, to Saul, to Aaron, numerous other less than perfect people in the scripture, some of whom wound up in nefarious ends, but not because God withheld from them his wisdom. God gives dumb people wisdom. You are no dumber than some of these people or less able. Prayer, spending time in prayer regularly brings me into a situation where I am exposed to God's responses to the appeals made to him, appeals of his people. It develops inside of me a functional confidence, a confidence that's really working, okay? And and his confidence concerning his inclination to provide for us, to employ his ability for us, to even in difficult circumstances, practically, I get to see his answers to my prayers. And when I pray and God answers, that affects the way I think about prayer. It affects about the way that I think about going to God with situations. You know, when you pray and God does crazy stuff and you see this, when you talk to people, your first inclination, well, let's pray. Let's pray right now. God will do things. And you notice the kind of, well, okay. No, no, no. Not okay. Let's pray. Let's really pray. Because God will do things. He wants to. Second Chronicles 16.9 says, The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. Important stuff. It is important that we believe that God can do what we ask. And if we really examine ourselves, we see that there are a bunch of different ways of believing that God can do things, including believing that he will. For instance, okay, we believe that God can heal physical maladies, cancer, whatever the case may be. He can, but the scripture doesn't tell us that he absolutely will. You know, it doesn't, the scripture is not, explicitly tell us that God is going to heal us. But it definitely tells us he can. 
if he chooses to. Now, the scripture tells us that he will give us wisdom. It doesn't say he might or on Thursdays after five, does it? It says if you ask, he will give you wisdom. There's no other way to look at that other than that it is God's desire to provide what you need in order to understand and go forward in your situation. Now, some of the things we deal with are outside, you know, of our functional ability. You know, um, gosh, we're so subject to our emotions and stuff. You know, you, you can easily find yourself in an emotional situation where you're asking God, know where you're asking God to intervene and to take a hold of a situation and it's so close to your heart and so important to you that your your emotions are just screaming that you know you what if he doesn't what if he doesn't choose to In the second part of verse 6, we have a contrast. It talks about the, the person who doubts. He who doubts, like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. Subject to forces outside of his control. Given to chaos. No fixed point of reference. Like a ship without an anchor. In Hebrews chapter 6, the Holy Spirit in illustrating the difference between man's promises and God's promises says this, Hebrews 6.19. This hope we have is an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil. However, the man or woman that lacks that confidence, in verse 7, let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. Your father is very generous, folks. He is not, although prone to give, things that are going to be wasted. And when a person is utterly lacking confidence in God's ability, the effectiveness of God's word, there is little hope that any advantage will generate a real benefit. You speak to people like this all the time. They don't know what they think. They might be emotionally overwhelmed. They might be distracted or confused. Bottom line is they can't get out of their own way. And what they think, or what I think, is of little consequence. My anchor is in the presence of God behind the veil. My anchor is in what God knows and what he has revealed in his word. What I think can change every hour, and it does. I have all kinds of crazy thoughts. Wisdom dictates that I attach my mind to the certainty of God's word. And to do that, there may be a good deal of work and discipline involved, and that also is a good thing. In verses 5, 6, 7, and 8, we make the case that wisdom is a necessity. That God is happy to make it available, providing that the recipient has some inclination what to do with it. Wisdom is God's native language. If you don't speak my language, I can tell you the greatest things in the world. 
I can talk until we use up all the oxygen in the room. It makes no impact. Without a common understanding, without an underlying sincere confidence in God's ability, we have no fixed point of reference. We can't tell where we are. We can't know where we're going. In the second section, in verses 9, 10, and 11, God provides us with a practical example of God's wisdom. This is what it looks like. So recognize you need wisdom. God can provide it. He will anchor yourself in the confidence that he will provide what you need. Then in verses 9, 10, and 11, this is what it looks like. So when you see it, you will know. So verses 9 through 11, the significance and limitation of material wealth. You know, it's strange. As I look back on my youth, way back on my youth, um, the two things I wanted more than anything else in the world were money and fame. Seriously, rich and famous. And now as I look back, I am so very glad to have avoided both. I really am. It just shows, you know, how, when someone asks you, well, how dumb can you be? Oh, you can be really dumb. (laughs) You can be dumber than you might imagine. It's true. The only people that really know about the pitfalls and the hardships of those issues of fame and wealth are the rich and famous. And for most of them, it works like a drug more often than not. They can't live with it and they can't live without it. But all the while, they're devoted to make it look good. And that's really about trying to extract meaning and substance for their lives from the appreciation and envy of people too foolish to see the downside. Wow, it must be so great to be you. Yeah, yeah, it is. (laughs) It is. Crazy and rude people follow me and stalk my family everywhere we go, harassing us with endless requests to validate their existence. All the while, I'm trying to figure out ways to make $100,000 a week. Otherwise, everything I own goes upside down into repossession. It's the greatest. (laughs) Most people, most people on this planet can't imagine a better way. And that's because most people have no idea of who they are. People do not know who they are. Look at people. Look at them on the streets. Look at what they dress in. Look at what they do to their bodies. They're not able to appreciate who God made them as. If I know the Lord, I need to be able to appreciate that he had a purpose in making me who I am in every little detail. Even though I'm in a fallen world, even though I'm a messed up sinner, even the things that are wrong with me, God has intended for a benefit for my life. I've got to see that. I've got to engage that. In order to understand the significance of who you are, we need, to the best of our ability, to see this larger picture from God's perspective of time and eternity, just like it's laid out for us in the Scripture. 
Without a relationship with God, you cannot begin to do that. What did Jesus say to Nicodemus? Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Can't get started. You can't, you get no perspective. So in verse 9, he talks to us about exaltation. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation. Doesn't give us any detail, doesn't tell us why. But he makes the statement without clarification, the lowly brother, a believer that is without income or perhaps in material difficulty of some sort or another, of which, you know, there are a great many people. And if you go through the epistles in the New Testament and note those that are mentioned at the close of epistles, especially Romans chapter 16, a good number of them are slaves. There are a lot of slaves, and there may be more slaves than we know, but some of the household slaves, you can recognize them by their names. Um, Primus, Secundus, Tertius, Quartus. Those are all household slaves. They didn't give them names. They numbered them. First, second, third, fourth. Those are slaves written of and greeted in the end of epistles. Again, primarily Romans 16 is a good place to look. The uh, author of Luke in the book of Acts, Luke may well have been a slave, as many doctors were during the first century Roman era. The verse says, let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation. The only meaning that we can attach to this is the meaning provided by the contrast in the later verses here, that he should glory, he should glory in the Lord. He should exult or celebrate or acknowledge God's favor upon them for this situation. The idea here is that being poor is in fact an evidence of God's favor. And I've got to tell you, there's a lot of notable support for that view in the scripture. I mean, from our culture, people are dramatically more open to the gospel when they're poor than when they are affluent. If you don't understand this, or you have never gone door-to-door witnessing, go door-to-door witnessing in El Sereno, and then go over to San Marino and go door-to-door witnessing and notice the contrast in how you are received. I've gone to the doors of poor people. I was thinking about this the other day. I went up to this house in a very poor part of town, in, in Altadena, actually, and I knocked on the door, and there were people in there sitting around, and I, and I just opened the door a little bit, and I started talking to this lady seated in the chair right by the door. She's watching TV, and I, I talked to her for 10, 15 seconds, and I said, you know, we're just out talking to people about Jesus, and we're wondering, would you like to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? And she looked at me, and she said, I would love to do that right now. She prayed with and received Christ as her Lord, right, sitting there right in front of the TV and God and everybody, you know, accepted Christ because somebody came to her door. I have numerous times gone to affluent neighborhoods and knocked on the door to be greeted by the intercom and told that they gave at the office. It's unfortunate. It's sad. Poor people suffer greater persecution, which is in Scripture associated with following Christ. Philippians 1.29, For you it has been given 
granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Poor people are much more likely to suffer real persecution than the affluent. When somebody's very affluent and they start sharing the gospel with you, you just take it patiently and talk about them behind their back. Somebody poor starts telling you about Jesus, you let them have it right there. Hey, Buster, what do you think you're doing? You know who I am? Poor people are, if not dramatically, at least somewhat happier than rich people. Look at statistics. Look at at surveys on happiness. You'll find that poor people are not markedly more happy but they're a little more happy than rich people. Rich people are depressed. Rich people think about taking their lives every day. Why? Because they've got everything everybody wants and they hate their life anyway. What am I going to do? Even though they suffer all this difficulty. And then, of course, James' own view in James chapter 2, verse 5. Listen, my beloved brethren, has not God chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith? and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him. Amen. And then, by contrast, in verse 10, but the rich in his humiliation. So we have this comparison to illustrate the situation of rich people, and he gives us an an analogy, because in verse 10, because as the flower of the field, he will pass away. One thing shared by all mankind is the brevity of our time in this world. Long about the time that you reach 30 years of age, it is pretty startling to you. When you hit 30, you go, wow, what happened to that? You know, it's like, I was just 20 and now I'm 30. What time is it? You know, when do I get 40? And I mean, it's really startling. Then, you know, Fortunately, as you get older, you get more and more accustomed to the swift passage of time. So that by the end, it's no shock to you that it's been just a very few days after all. One of the reasons it is all the more amazing to me that people so devote themselves to amassing vast empires or struggle and strive every waking hour to possess some object or another. For what? Why? I Every once in a while on TV, I'll see the, the show, you know, the uh, mega yachts of the rich and famous. People, people drop $300 million on a boat. They make a boat for $300 million. And I look at that and I think, I mean, it's kind of terrifying. I mean, it really is. It really is. I mean, I'm great. I'm so glad you have a helicopter back there, you know. And, and, you know, marble from Kathmandu. All your countertops. They're going to make it really thin because it's got to be light. And I mean, I don't know what to even, I wouldn't, if I met that person, I mean, my thought is, I mean, you don't sit in that thing and go, (laughs) wow. so happy got this big boat you know what if a rock hits it oh my gosh no save me you know i mean 
people don't know who they are. People do not know who they are. They do not know why they are here. You know why you're here. You know. Verse 11 says, For no sooner has the sun risen with the burning heat than it withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man will fade away in his pursuits. Very similar to Psalm 103, verses 15 and 16. Uh, For as for man, his days are like the grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourishes. For the wind passes over it and it is gone, and its place remembers it no more. The wisdom to us is basically that if we begin to see where we really fit in this world, then we will pursue a more balanced perspective. We are temporary, regardless of the importance that we command here and now. It will not endure. And folks, we're all temporary. Nebuchadnezzar, Alexander, Caesar, Napoleon, David Letterman, all going the way of the world. There is no permanence in this world. Hebrews 13, 14 says, For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Do we? Do we seek the one to come? I'm in the middle of remodeling my house. I'm not working this week. I'm painting the whole thing. We seek the one to come. (laughs) Got to do it. It's all going to burn. It is. It makes my wife happy. It's going to look pretty for five minutes. It's okay. But seriously... About three weeks ago, four weeks ago, I thought I was going to have a heart attack. And uh, I, I was out of the office. I was sick for about five weeks or something. And um, I was on all kinds of medication. I had pneumonia, and I was pretty messed up. And I was sitting up late at night watching a documentary with my wife and my son about some murder. This guy murdered a bunch of people. He went here and did this. and this. You watch those things, you know, and it's like, wow, how weird, you know. But you're detached from reality. You really, it's not real to you. You know, the fact that this person took somebody's life. It's not real to you. And I'm sitting on my sofa. I'm sitting there and my heart is like going. There's something flopping around on my chest. What's going on? It's weird. And I'm kind of dizzy. I'm not feeling really good. And I started feeling like all the blood's kind of draining out of my arms. And I'm sitting down, relaxing, and I'm feeling like I'm going to pass out right now. I'm going to pass out. And I'm thinking, this is not a good thing. You know, you don't pass out while you're sitting down relaxing. And I'm thinking... Do I want to tell my wife to take me to the emergency room? And I don't want to see her get all upset, you know, but at the same time, I don't want to just die on the sofa for no good reason. <laughs> I'm serious. I'm deadly serious. And I'm sitting there and I'm, and while I'm gone, these things are all zipping through my mind real quick, you know, and I'm sitting there and I'm going, wow, you know, she will curse. And I look at this TV thing in the sky and I'm thinking, this is not amusing. This is not entertaining. This is a very bad thing perspective about everything changes everything 
When you walk through your life expecting Jesus to show up in the next room and be right there with you, your perspective of everything changes. You are here for a very few minutes. That's it. Nobody in this room is going to see 40,000 days. Nobody. Why see wealth as a humiliation? Interesting question. The idea is a really a, a serious departure for the Jewish people, actually, who always, until the teaching of Jesus, examine the scripture, they always saw wealth as a blessing from the Lord. Even to this day, the Jewish people believe that those that God loves, he makes rich. But as we examine the teaching of Christ and the apostles, we see a very different view. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That's pretty exclusive. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it but he who does the will of God abides forever. The more honored and at home a person is in this world, this present world, the more of a shock to their system the transition to the next world is likely to be, and the less prepared they will be. Jesus says, Those things that are highly esteemed among men are an abomination in the sight of God. Consider the exhortation of the Apostle Paul, 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy 6, 6, he says, Now godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain that we can carry nothing out. Having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich... Surveys say that men spend more time thinking about money than they do about sex. Scary. Either way, it's scary. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of many money is the root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. It is not easy to avoid these distractions. It's a struggle, folks. I got to tell you, it's a struggle. You live in the most materialistic, the best armed most materialistic culture in the history of this planet. This place that you live in is designed to make you a consumer. Do you know why youth is so highly praised by the society you live in? C.S. Lewis says it is because it is at that point that the people of our culture have the least sales resistance. Young people don't have the sense to say, Do I really need that? Or maybe I should think about that a little while longer before I buy it. We are all targets. 
Every day you must remind yourself that this world is not your home. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 says, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things of the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. 1 Peter 2.11 says, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners, that's a visitor, somebody passing through, and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. What do they do? They war against your soul. These alternative values, values and sensibilities of this world do violence to the work of God inside of us, and they will kill us from the inside out. They'll do it. If we fail to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice, which is our reasonable service, Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Luke 12, 15, Jesus said to them, Take heed, beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. This is not what you're here for. In Matthew 16, 26, Jesus asked the question, What profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Notice, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? Not a lot. He doesn't say, what, what does it profit you if you're Warren Buffett or Bill Gates? No. What profit is it to you if you gain the whole thing? You get the whole world. It's all yours. What is the profit there? Guarantee it'll burn a hole in your pocket. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus was at dinner in the city of Bethany at the, uh, with Lazarus and, and uh, Martha and Mary at the house of Martha. In Luke ten forty, Martha was distracted with much serving and she approached him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. Not an unreasonable request. It's not unreasonable. But listen to Jesus' unreasonable answer. Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things. But one thing is needed. And Mary has chosen that good part which will not be taken away from her. She's not going to lose it. Be the wise man. Choose that one thing that will not be taken away from you. Let God provide stability for your faith in his word and by prayer. Recognize the limitations on the things of this world and the eternal significance of God's purpose in us, working for us. We may have difficulty. And if you don't have difficulty in your life, you will. You will. 2 Corinthians 4.17 says, For our light affliction is but for a moment, working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. And that's real. That's real. Hold on to that. 
every day. Be the wise man. Father, we thank you, Lord, for being here with us this evening, Lord, for your kindness, Lord, in, in Father, overlooking our many failures and shortcomings, Lord, you're so good to us. We just thank you, Lord, for the community that you placed us in, Lord, not the city, but, Lord, the people that you have placed us with, Lord, that we might serve and bless and care for one another, and, Lord, that we might truly put the interests of others ahead of our own. Father, fill us with your spirit to do just that. Lord, that we would bless people. And Lord, wisdom to see our own selfishness. If we try so hard to dress it up and noble, give it nobility and all these different things, Lord, help us to see who we really are. And Lord, to hand ourselves over to you. And Father, Lord, give us wisdom to live our days in your sight. And Lord, to love your appearing. We love you. We thank you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, you guys.